Welcome, this is the Sales IQ Podcast. My name is Luigi Prestoninzi, and I'm on a mission to help salespeople be the best sales professionals they can be. Each week, we'll bring you a different message from thought leaders from around the globe so we can help you master the art of selling. Digital first, not digital only. The world of selling has changed, and last year, that change was accelerated literally overnight. We all went from selling in a face-to-face environment to literally selling in a virtual world. Now, as we come out of the back of what's been an incredibly difficult 18 months, things are starting to get back to somewhat normal. Face-to-face events are coming back. Face-to-face interactions with customers are starting to come back. However, the world of virtual is here to stay. And the hybrid work model has changed the way in which we'll engage with our customers. What's incredible about today's episode, we get to talk with the absolute incredible Tiffany Bova, who's the global growth and innovation evangelist from Salesforce, and also a Wall Street Journal best-selling author, who's also Growth IQ. And Tiffany's going to talk about how that digital first aspect of selling can make us more efficient. And yes, we will have those face-to-face interactions, because let's face it, people need that face-to-face interaction. There are things that it's simply easier to do in a face-to-face environment. However, if you were or if you are that coffee and donut sales guy, saleswoman, sales pro that has been servicing your customers, just focusing on relationships, just focusing on that professional visit, well, I'd hate to say it, but that is a big risk moving forward. Because what we do know now more than ever before Customers require more business justification than ever to buy from you. They're looking for value-added insight. They're looking for for insight that will help them mitigate certain risk and help them identify an unrecognized problem. And if you're not bringing that value to the table, then unfortunately, your customers won't make time for you anymore. And that's the reality facing our profession today. And that's what we're going to talk about with Tiffany around some of the skills required to be successful and what are the top, you know, what do those top 1%, what are the characteristics and behaviors they exhibit to be so successful in their role? Revenue operations is much more than words in a job title. It's a movement that is transforming sales, marketing, and customer success teams into high-performing revenue drivers. RingDNA is a recognized Gartner cool vendor that makes RevOps possible by driving improved operational efficiency and revenue capture from sales, marketing, and customer success. Trusted by the top companies across the globe, RingDNA offers a complete sales engagement, conversational intelligence, and revenue intelligence platform for Salesforce customers. Learn how we can transform your results at ringdna.com. That's ringdna.com. So this is a great episode one which will really challenge the way we, in which we think about the world of digital and what we need to do moving forward, how we must embrace it, not fear it, because it's an enabler. It can enable us to be more successful leveraging the digital world and leveraging the fact that, yes, relationships are key, but in order to build that relationship, we've got to be bringing a point of value. We've got to be bringing value to the table. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm pretty excited, not only you know, having an author, a fellow podcast host, but somebody that 
is a global evangelizer who is out there really spruiking and advocating for the world of, you know, creating better customer experiences and working with such a, a juggernaut of a platform called Salesforce. So I want to say thank you for coming on our podcast. Of course, like I've always game to talk about sales. <laughs> well, before we get into the, you know, the conversation around customer experience and how sellers can differentiate themselves in a crowded marketplace, would love to learn a bit about how you started in the world of selling and what you currently do in your role as Salesforce. Sure. You know, this is a great question because I think, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't say, when I grow up, I want to be in sales. Nor when you go to college, do you go, I want to be in sales, right? Because there's not necessarily paths to do, you know, the college route or the uni route, as you would say in, in Aussie, right. That, that there isn't really that path. And, and then from a, just a pure, you're a kid, I want to grow up and be a salesperson. My mom was probably like, what, what are you talking about? But uh, you know, I, I fell in love with it accidentally. I think you just naturally either find your way to sales or you make a conscious decision to get into Mm. sales. And I think I naturally found my way in. I was born and raised in Hawaii, actually, depending on when this goes live. Today was actually the day that the Sydney Opera House opened way back in 1974. And I, that was the first time I went into Australia. It was a week after the opera house had opened. So the first time I sort of stepped foot in Australia, I was very, very young, but I got to sort of travel the world and I had the opportunity to be exposed to sales at a really young age, not really realizing it was sort of sales or a career, right? I was just doing things that were trying to sell a product or sell a service or promote a a nightclub or promote a, a, an event to raise money after a hurricane or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of good at this sales and marketing and, you know, promoting kind of how can I make money maybe doing this, you know, more than I'm making now. And then accidentally found my way into technology and the rest is sort of history. You know, I mean, I think I I was really blessed to um, get in on selling tech uh, all the way back in 1995. Uh, So I've been selling technology for a minute or two, but, but I would say this, I, I, I think that it is a noble profession. Mm. I think companies do two things. They make stuff and they sell stuff. And it doesn't matter how great the product is that they make. If you can't sell, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So I'm I'm really hopeful that this becomes a career that has the same level of interest and rigor put into it from a pure career and education standpoint, but also from a pure operational standpoint as well. Yeah. Now, what an amazing journey. And, you know, for a minute or two, I mean, you've been selling technology for a long time. I think you've probably seen the, a, a, a huge shift in the way that people view technology from a business perspective. But I'd love to ask you, I mean, I've, I've got a daughter, you know, she's 19 years old and she's embarking herself in a real estate career and, and always asking me kind of tips around selling. But, and I think, you know, if people like yourself have really enabled, um, you know, the likes of my daughter to, 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 to move into a profession now not worrying or as much as being a female, but I would love to understand as you know, when you first started, what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome being a female in a, in a male dominant sales world? Yeah. Not only was it just male dominated in sales, but it's tech, which just amplified it even more, but I'll be really honest here. Like I'm not a technologist in that way. Mm. Like I, I, I ultimately, I, don't believe that I have sold technology. I believe that I sell change. 
and change in the way a company would do something by leveraging this thing called technology, right? It might've been servers and networking and email early on. And then ultimately, you know, and eventually I was the beta client for Loqua and Constant Contact all the way back in 2000. So I was very early in the web as well. And I, I felt like those conversations suited me well. I'm a good asker of questions. I've become a much better listener, you know, over time. I'm uh, absolutely able to sort of create this aggregation of people and pulling people in when I need them. And ultimately, I'm really good networker and building relationships. And I think those things served me really well. Am I the best technologist? Absolutely not. Am I the best salesperson? You know, I definitely am not one that goes, okay, you know, here's solution selling or spin selling or challenger selling. Like I'm not that kind of seller, unfortunately, because I might even be better, but I hit quota. I hit quota regardless. So, you know, I, I really seem to have found uh, a place, but you know, there's many, many a story early in my tech selling career where I'd be absolutely the only woman in the room for sure in a room full of men who were making the decisions. And I never felt like I got the the deal because I was a woman or I didn't get the deal because I was a woman. Maybe I'm naive to that, but I never, I never experienced that feeling of Mm -hmm. not being welcome because I was a woman or I was welcome because I was a woman. You know what I mean? I just, that, that wasn't something I experienced. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Doesn't mean there are, Mm -hmm. you know, many people who have experienced it. I just have not. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I think one of the things that you mentioned, you know, like you're right, the change element, right? People don't buy what you sell, they buy the outcome you you enable them to achieve. And ultimately technology is about change. It's about helping people arrive, create a better, better experience. I mean, for a whole variety of things. But I'd love to sort of touch on that. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you went you didn't follow a a specific sales process, but you hit quota and you were focused on the change. You weren't a technologist. How did you develop that mindset that allowed you to kind of, you know, go to market and talk about change in an era where technology wasn't adopted as much as it is today? Yeah, there was, I'll tell you, there's one statement, become a student of your profession. So, you know, yes, I followed, you know, whatever training from a selling perspective, solution selling, spin selling, you know, back then, what whatever it was, of course, because we kind of had to, right? But yeah. that's not what made me a better seller. That was just a mechanism to track what I was doing and understand where I might be able to make improvement. But on the become a student of your profession, I was selling originally into the legal uh, industry. And I had, uh, at some crazy point in my college career, thought I wanted to be an attorney. So I was a paralegal during the summer, which meant that, you know, I had some experience of understanding that literally I had to hand bait stamp thousands of documents and then hand data, enter it into Microsoft MS DOS (laughs) on a green screen. And then look stuff up on dial up to LexisNexis. Like it was painful at best. And this is, you know, this is in the um, early nineties. And so I kind of had an understanding of how technology could help that role, right? If we could automate that bait stamping, if we could scan and code it, and if we could use, you know, that scanning and then using Boolean searching and all that kind of Mm -hmm. intelligence to spit out documents and millions of documents for trial. And we could absolutely improve the day and life of an attorney. Even something is like writing down how much time you spent talking to a client, having that now 
you know, enter it into your phone. When the phone rings, enter the customer code, you know, client code, hang up the phone that would log so that the attorney would no longer have to do that because I had a basic understanding of that role. Yeah. Having the conversation aligned me. And immediately I realized mm. that if I could show up understanding the value equation, I would do such a great job. So because that was the industry that I was focused on selling to, and I had an understanding, I really knocked it out of the park. But I then learned very quickly that if I was talking to a CFO or someone in finance and they were going to talk to me about, you know, how is this going to be paid for? Is it contra revenue? And now all of a sudden I was out of my comfort zone, right? I didn't yep. understand P&Ls, if you will. So I went and took a class at, you know, I'm in Southern California. So I took a class at UCLA. It was just a day long accounting class, the basics 101, mm -hmm. not so I could talk to a finance person, you know, intelligently. It was only so I could understand the question so I could go find yeah. out the answer. And so becoming a student of the profession was I would read and consume law, technology, product news. I'd go to the trade shows, right? I'd ask questions. I took those classes that gave me the leg up. And so you combine that with my curiosity and my relationship building mm -hmm. skills and my networking skills. That was a very powerful combination to help me hit quota and then, you know, move up, yeah. move up, move up, move up, move up. Right. Until I was you know, ultimately running a division of a fortune 500 company in tech here in the U S and that was really my last operational sales leadership, yeah. marketing and service role. But over the course of a decade, that's how quickly I, I moved to yeah. those ranks because I, I found my secret superpower, if you will. <laughs> that's an amazing, and uh, look, I resonate with that so much because you're right. Like we're talking to C-level executives. We're talking to people about embarking on a change journey. And if we don't understand or have a, a, a basic premise of what's going on in their world and, and, and what are the challenges that they're experiencing and how is that preventing them from achieving their outcomes, we're not really earning the right to have a conversation with them. And I love the fact that you've said that, that the student of the profession and really trying to understand and empathize and go that level deeper instead of just, you know, taking your company's training of, hey, this is what we do. These are the benefits. And, and I think for me, what I'm seeing in the market right now is there is a clear separation of salespeople and sales professionals. And the professionals who are out there um, building their skills, learning more about their customers, learning how they can, you, you talk, you know, that value equation are the ones that are seeing real success. I want to sort of talk about your book because your book talks about so many key things that I think salespeople today need more than ever before. Like it's a world of, when we think of content, there's content, there's products. Customers are now, they don't have limited choice anymore. There is so much choice. What can sellers do to kind of differentiate themselves in a saturated market? Well, I'd go back to what we were just talking about. Look, you know, when I was selling, it was a single user version of ACT and Goldmine, yeah. a little bit of Excel, bubble gum, and some post-it notes. And I would spin my desk Rolodex and say, that's who I'm going to call today. Like it was, it was ugly at best, right? But fast forward, sellers don't have to do that anymore. And for sales managers that are listening to this, like, is it really still 25 years later, call hundred people, 10, call you back, three will schedule a meeting, one will buy something really today. Or is it, why don't you let the CRM system actually tell you here are the 10 you should call today. Here's the messaging. Here is why here's the next best action. Here's the offer. 
here's the story to tell them, you know what, you are this kind of customer. You know, we know we normally see in 90 days, a customer like you that's already bought this from us really starts to see value. If you do these three things, oh, really tell me more. Mm. And it's hard for a seller to know that kind of information at scale without technology. Yeah. Yet the relationship between a seller and tech has not been one of love. Yeah. <laughs> and what I mean by that is it tends to be the, the metric, the productivity, mm. the pipeline, the forecast, right? And it's all about those mechanics. It's about the input that the seller can do versus the value of the output. And if the seller can start to see and feel and understand the output value like that, call these 10, here's the offer, here's why, mm. here's the script, here's just-in-time coaching. Oh, we listened to your conversation. Here's some feedback. Oh, you talk 28 minutes out of the 30 minutes, like, you know, whatever it mm. is. And they start to really see the value out. They'd have a very different relationship with tech. Yep. Instead of like, it's a way for my manager to manage me. It's a way to see what I'm doing every minute. Mm. It's a way to get pipeline and forecast. And so because of that, sales reps might do something like sandbagging. <laughs> like, yeah. no, I'm not going to enter a deal because <laughs> if I do that, my manager is going to call me and bug me about the deal. So I'm going to hold yep. the deal in stage two until I know I'm going to win the deal. And then miraculously, I'm such a brilliant, amazing seller. I went right from stage two to close. Woo, aren't I great? <laughs> but in reality, I just sandbagged it, right? But yeah. the reason sellers sandbag is because of the, of the way in which they're managed and the way in which managers use the CRM tool and the pipeline tools and all the things that are used is a way to be much more productivity focused than value focused. And that yeah. is a big cultural shift. Very easy for me to say, sounds really great. You're going to listen to this and go, my God, yes, my sales manager does these things. I wish they didn't. And I wish they did these things. But, you know, I can say that the only mm -hmm. thing a seller can control, can't control your comp plan, can't control mm -hmm. what you sell, can't control your territory, can't control what tools you use pretty much. But what you can control is how you show up at that moment yeah. of truth in front of a customer. And that's where the student of the profession, the value, the understanding of those subtleties um, really separates you from the rest. Because if the yeah. rest are just ticking off the boxes, they're not going to be as successful as you. I think the seller of the future, the winner, the winning seller of the future is going to be the one that uses technology better than you. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love the fact that you're talking about leveraging the tech, embracing it. And I think, you know, we've all been guilty. I mean, not about you, but I know that I've been guilty of sandbagging deals in the past, right? Miraculously. No, I've sandbagged. Of yeah. course. <laughs> the next quarter starts and I'm already in front, right? So um, Well, I've sandbagged up. Like forget being an individual rep. Okay, now yeah. I have a hundred reps working for me. I'm still sandbagging, right? Because <laughs> they're sandbagging, so I'm sandbagging. Like it's just so when executives feel like they have visibility mm. into the forecast and pipeline, I'm always like, mm. Depends how yeah. much your team sandbags, right? And and so I, I think that look, it's not lost on me. I work at Salesforce, obviously. But prior to Salesforce, I was a research fellow at Gartner advising some of the largest tech companies in the world, you know, could yeah. be, you know, Singtel, could be Telstra, could be, right, Who, whomever it might be in region. <laughs> and also some of the U.S.-based companies that were going to, you know, enter into the ANZ, ASEAN, APAC market. Yeah. So I can tell you that I would say the exact same thing. It's not mm. just because I work here. We just happen to have amazing technology but I just want sellers to use technology. Yeah. I hope it's us, but it needs to be something, right? It needs to be something because it's just almost impossible to keep up if, you, if you're not using technology yeah. at this point. 
But I think, and and look, I think for many that, you know, the last 18 months has been an incredibly turbulent experience for a lot of people, um, regardless of how your business has performed, because some businesses have gone, you know, incredibly well during the last 18 months. I think for many people, the psychological challenges that we've had to go through have been difficult, right? And now, you know, change has kind of been brought forward. And I think, and, and again, I'd love to get your opinion on this, but you talk about that data literacy, that embracing tech versus kind of being scared of it. And to t- tell a story, you know, there's a, there's a, an Australian business that their sales force has fundamentally been the coffee and donuts model, um, still old school territory, walking into clients with coffee and donuts and having a bit of a chat and ultimately getting an order. And what the business has realized is that since the pandemic kicked, they haven't been able to go and visit the customers and they're an expensive sales force, cars, phones, you know, pubs, beers, <laughs> the works. Sales results have actually not dipped. They've gotten better. And it's now making the business ask questions of, is the same structure, go-to-market structure that we've had, can we achieve the outcome we need moving forward without such a sort of model that we've been always used to? Mm-hmm. It's also asked some other questions. Have we got a sales team that can now embrace the new hybrid work model. A lot of them have been, you know, really resistant to virtual selling, resistant to updating the CRM, et cetera. And it's creating some concerns, not just for the business, but for the individuals. And again, this is where as a sales professional, there's an, we're coming to a point in our careers where if we don't embrace technology and we don't allow it to enable us to be the best we can be, it could ultimately lead us to a point of redundancy. If you are that seller listening to this going, I've been a bit resistant to change. I've been a bit resistant to technology, but I'm hearing, you know, Tiffany talk, growth IQ, the importance of leveraging, becoming data literate, you know, finding ways to allow me, to allow technology to enable me to be the best I can be. Where can they start to make that change? Yeah, there's so much that you just said. So there's been hundreds of selling organizations around the world that were very resistant to trying to be more of a hybrid selling organization Mm -hmm. pre-pandemic, meaning they're field sellers. Do they always need to spend time behind the windshield or on an airplane um, going to see a client, right? Or to pubs or to, you know, whatever uh, it, it, it might be. And they were resistant because they felt that the value was in that relationship, that shaking of the hand, that seeing each other face to face, that that was their competitive advantage. If I'm in front of my customer, no one else is in front of my customer. And if I'm in front of my customer, I'm always sort of reminding them that I'm the person that can solve whatever, you know, sort of issue or business or product or service they needed to, to buy from you. The pandemic hits and then overnight, everyone was forced to face the fact that they weren't willing to make those transitions over the last decade or decade and a half when, you know, digital started to really take over. But what we've now seen is an, I think, an overcorrection. Do I think it's going to stay completely hybrid? I think it's going to be digital first, but not digital only. So if I could have a quick 15 minute conversation with you, right? First question, answer a couple of things or ask you questions, get clarification. I can see you on a video call. It's better than a phone call kind of a thing, right? Did I need to drive an hour to do that? Mm. Take 45 minutes out of your day and then drive an hour back. I think the customers value that 15 minutes. Like they, they value that it's, it's shorter time. They're able to get more done on their side. And so sales is seeing the benefit of that. 
But I think that it's going to go back to sort of somewhere in the middle of those two things. When, so as a sales leader or even an individual seller, when is it appropriate for me to see someone face-to-face and why? What would be the trigger that would say, "Mm, this is something I don't want to do virtually? Mm -hmm. And then what are the things that you can do virtually, you know, that you're like, no, I don't need to come see you. I can do this better virtually. That is going to either have to come from your own personal learnings or your your company is going to say, this is when we go face-to-face and this is when we go, you know, virtual. But I think that there is a decision. Mm. I think if you make the mistake of saying it's always going to be virtual or digital, or it's always going to go back to -to face-to-face, you will have missed the lesson. To your point, look, Salesforce, last 18 months, we've had five amazing quarters. (laughs) No one's traveling. So right there, like it's digital first. We can continue to do this. Look, we can hire all these people. They don't have to be in, you know, and I'm like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Like I want to travel, right? But I'm not in the selling organization any any longer. I haven't been for a long time. So, so I would say that don't make the mistake to just stay where you are and think that's the way it's going to be. Mm. Understand what would be the reason to go face-to-face or stay yeah. virtual. Understand the pros and cons of that. It's not just about T&E. If you're doing it for a cost basis, that's the wrong reason. That yeah. is the wrong reason because you might miss those subtle things that your customers want from you that they might get somewhere else if you're not willing to do it anymore yeah. because you're like, oh, we've we've improved our bottom line. Our profitability is up because no one's traveling. Yeah. Let's keep doing that. And that's mm. not the right right answer either. And, and that's an, I, I love that because you know what, what, what you're saying, it's not just digital only, like di- digital only. It's digital first and it allows you to kind of understand how can we work through this. And again, I love, you know, the whole premise of your book and I want to talk about that um, next, but you know, if it's, it's not about saving cost, it's about the customer experience. What does that customer experience need to be in order for us to deepen that connection and relationship with our clients? And that's something that you talk about in your book, right? And we'll put, we'll make sure in the show notes, we have a link for where our listeners can grab Growth IQ because there's a number of key takeaways that I really, really resonated for me. But I do want to talk about that differentiation, that, that experience piece. And, and that's some of the things that I love about your, your content and what you share about why experience matters. If you're a seller, not necessarily in the customer success area of the business. Why is that customer experience so important now? Well, this has been a journey for me. When I was a research fellow at Gartner, now it has to be almost 10 years ago, if not 11. We made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more than the chief information officer on technology. And it was like blasphemy, right? We had said something that was, oh my gosh, so controversial. But what ended up happening was Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, Salesforce all went out and bought marketing technology to satisfy the fact that if CMOs are going to start to spend money on what? Experience type technologies, (laughs) right? To improve the buying journey, right? Content distribution, website commerce, like all the things that marketers are responsible Mm. for. Uh, We knew that experience was going to become the next battleground that it wasn't just going to be about the products that you sold or the services that you Mm. sold, but what was the experience that your customers, patients, you know, Mm. would feel. So it's not about kind of what you sell, which is a little interesting. And it's not about how you sell, which is a little more interesting. It's how your customers feel when they engage with you. That to me is really interesting. And so if experience is going to play a, a big part 
of a buyer's decision. And we found from Salesforce research that we think it's about 80% of a decision is made now on the experience, you know, and product being like, you know, you're going to have hundred percent of a decision on products. And now 80% is being impacted by the experience they have with you. Now that experience, maybe how easy was it to buy? How easy was yeah. it to return the user interface of your app? Like it isn't just experience, like you and me having a conversation, mm. you know, it's experience all up. They walk into your lobby. Was it clean? Was the receptionist kind? Mm. You know, was she helpful? Like, or he, right. It's, it's experience all up. Everyone plays a role. So that is why it was the first path to growth. There are 10 paths in, in growth IQ. And I wanted it to be real leveled on customer centricity, that the decisions yeah. that you make about how do you organize your sales force? What kind of sellers do you hire? Do you have sales engineers? Do you, you know, do you do inside sales, outside sales, account-based marketers, sales development reps? You know, yep. there are all kinds of ways to split that hair of quote unquote selling. What's best? What do your customers want? So even back to your previous question, is it hybrid? Do I do it virtually? Yeah. Do I do it in person? What do your customers want? It almost doesn't matter what you want. If yeah. your customers demand to see you in person, you go, nope, nope. We only sell virtually now because we proved over the last 18 months, we can do it. And they're like, yeah, don't care. I need you to come by. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you know, being customer centric should direct those kinds of mm -hmm. go to market models. So that's why that, that path was uh, the first one for me in the book. Yeah. This is amazing. Everything you're talking about sounds so simple, but we're saying, hey, don't let you go to market structure. You shouldn't dictate it. It's your customer, the experience that's important to them. And again, I love the fact that, you know, yes, this experience matters how you buy, but if the buying experience is fantastic, but then the delivery doesn't, isn't aligned to that, then the customer's expectation completely drops. And therefore, you know, churn occurs. And we often see that, and especially selling tech and SaaS, they're not buying you once, they're buying you over and over again, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ultimately it, it's, it's also something that that concerns managers because it's it's hard to measure that mm. feeling. You know what I mean? Like, what does that mean? So I mm. I, I use restaurant as a, a basic example. You know, you're gonna you're gonna you know go to a really expensive restaurant in the key, and the food was good, but the service was excellent. Mm. Would you go back? If the food yeah. was excellent and the service was terrible, would you go back? Yeah, probably not, right? So even though the food was good, even though the product was good, but the service was terrible, right? And then you might yeah. say to someone, oh, the food was great, but the service was yeah. terrible. Mm. So the experience, if you just said, it's all about the food, it's about the presentation, yeah. it's about the plating, it's about the tablecloths, it's about the this and the that, all very important, right? But it's all very important. But if the service, if the hostess at the front was mm. rude and you waited and it was crowded at the front and then they kind of like just sat you down, tossed the menus down and then they were like, okay, it's been 90 minutes, you need to go. You know, that's not yeah. a great experience. So yeah. always think about that balance between what it is you're selling and then how the customer feels during that mm. engagement. And, and now, yeah. how do you measure that? Is it net promoter score on the experience? Is it customer satisfaction? Is it churn rates if you're in a mm. recurring revenue business? Is it um, average sale price? Is it you know customer lifetime value? Like there's a lot of ways you can yeah. measure that particular part of it. But look, sales tends to be the tip of the spear of that experience. 
So mm. enabling them to be successful is really important, but don't forget about the post sales. You have to yep. enable them equally because they play such a huge role in keeping the customer, you know, mm. upselling, cross-selling the customer, depending on how you're organized. So there's, you know, everybody in the company has, has a role to play in delivering those experiences. Yeah. And that's where this chief revenue officer role has really been been come from, right? Because that's that alignment piece is so important. It's not, it's not that traditional you know, customer, and then we've got our separate divisions all operating. It's putting that customer, like you say, at the center of everything that we do and making sure each area of the business that supports that customer is aligned. And I love the fact, because you're right, people buy with feeling, they buy with emotion, right? And then they'll justify their decision later. So I think there's so much for, for sellers to take away. If, you know, again, we're going to put the show notes so that people can access and go and buy, purchase your book. But what's another one of the, the kind of the growth IQ, one of the key principles that you sure. feel is you know, key for people to take away. With. So the, the foundation was the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. <laughs> so yeah. that was my way of getting out of saying one thing, right? <laughs> but after having some five or 6,000 conversations over a decade with sales leaders of all sizes from all over the world, from, you know, one, you know, a startup that's hiring their first salesperson to the very yep. largest selling organizations in the world, I can tell you that what I heard pretty consistently was, wow, it's getting, you know, it's getting a little bit hard to sort of close that pipeline. Mm. So what should we do, Tiffany? Should we hire more salespeople, spend more marketing dollars, yep. cut costs? And those were kind of the three levers. And I said, it can't just be those three. So that's how I kind of came up with the 10. But when, if you're talking about sales specifically, there's three that always are, are in place. And so the, the whole concept of growth IQ is it's a combination of multiple growth paths depending on where you are. And the three I talk about fairly consistency, uh, consistently, especially with this audience, as I said, is customer experience, which we just talked mm. about. The next one is optimized sales. Yep. It should be no shock, right? If 66% of a seller's time is spent on non-selling activities and the average selling organization is going to have 54% of their sellers missing quota day one, we have a problem. That's like, it, this doesn't translate, I guess, regionally, but Houston, we have a problem, right? We, I mean, we have a problem. So, you know, but there's a great white, we have a problem, that kind of problem, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so <laughs> I'm surfing at Bondi Beach, see a great white, we got a problem. Yeah. All right. So I got it. All right. Okay. So we have a problem. And so how can you optimize the way that you sell? Gosh. Mm. I have to log into five things to get an answer. It takes me yeah. 24 hours to get a pricing concession. It takes, you know, those kinds of things, right? So optimize sales with what you already have. How do you make that more productive? And then the third one would be customer-based penetration. That yeah. so many selling organizations are overly focused on net new logo acquisition and they yep. spend a lot of money. If you're in a SaaS business, that CAC is, can be high, right? That customer mm -hmm. acquisition cost can be high. So why, once you find that gold, do you just leave it alone? Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to go to a mountain, I find oil, precious gems, whatever it is. And I go, that's fantastic. Let's go find another mountain. But that's not what you do. What you yeah. do is you say, I'm going to mine that mountain or, you know, that, you know, oil. Well, as much as I can, while someone else is out looking for another mountain, when this one becomes dry. Yeah. And so the other one is customer-based penetration, which I think there's not enough emphasis put on that customer base you already have. Mm. Are they successful using your product and service? So the customer success organization, 
You know, are they only using one of your products when you have five in your portfolio? How do you get them yep. to buy their second, their third, their fourth? How do you get them to sign up for a longer contract? Like, what are you doing to make sure the experience of your existing yeah. customers is still really strong? So those are the three that I think more than anything, especially over the last 18 months, have been those that I just talk about the most. That's incredible data, right? For anyone listening to this going, you know, 66% of the time, 54% don't hit target. I mean, and these are the these are the challenges facing our profession. But again, that was one of the key things that I took away from yours was that customer penetration because we do we, I see this a lot right and and that's that's because the the traditional sales structure is you hunt you find new business somebody else owns it and then their priorities and their responsibilities are different because they're looking at it from a different lens but I've always found you know that the quickest path to growth is looking at my existing database and also the ones that have great experience will often then help me find other people just like them right? And that referral base can be quite strong. So just, I know that we're sort of coming to a point of, I'm loving this chat. I could, I could chat to you about this all day, <laughs> but, but for anyone listening to this, that might've gone through a moment of, you know what, I've had a really tough time and we know the data is very evident right now. There's a lot of sellers that missed, that keep missing target. You know, what's, what's, what's one piece of advice you could give them that would help them finish the calendar year with a bit of a, you know, with a bit of a push and start the new new calendar year fresh, revived and ready to achieve success. So I'm going to answer that two sides to the same coin. The first one, let me start with managers. Yep. Look, we have been pushing sellers really hard over the last 18 months, right? If companies sell stuff or make stuff and sell stuff, and if you're not selling stuff, the doors don't stay open. People don't have jobs. There's a lot of pressure. And, oh, you know, I don't care that you know, you're on lockdown and you're still on lockdown and geez, you know, Melbourne has just opened back up. Um, I think the longest in the world that's been still yeah. continued to be locked down, but you've made a lot of progress in the last eight months. So that's awesome. But if you, if you think about that, we want to make sure we're taking care of our people. So as a leader, if you start to see behaviors change from your top performers or, or others in your selling organization, that's out of character, reach out, make sure they're not mm -hmm. feeling sort of anxiety and burnout because we've seen it across the board in selling from yeah. all corners of the globe. So as a manager, make sure that you are giving whatever mental health and well-being and support they may need just to get themselves sort of, you know, stabilized right in okay, this has been a really rough 18 months. How do I, you know, kind of reset? And that's really management's responsibility to make sure that you're giving people the safety and the space to talk about the things that, that may be really challenging for them. So that's one piece of it. On the actual seller side, I'd say, look, I don't need you to do everything I just described. Become a student of your profession, invest in technology, like all the things I rattled off overnight. But what yeah. I do need you to do, even listening to this podcast is part of becoming a student of your profession. Mm. So how do you do more of that? You know, do you go to Salesforce's trailhead? Do you take trails? It's free. It's free training mm. on how to be a better storyteller or how to use technology better, or what does it mean to write a better email? Or there's all kinds of things in there that are free. So using those resources is one way to remain being a student of the profession. But also, you know, is it in the, look, I'm not really relying on technology the way I could. Maybe I'll try doing this. One little yeah. thing, one little thing every day, one little thing. Mm. I'm going to take a half hour break every three hours. 
I'm going to go take a walk around the block. You know, whatever it is, if you make a little 1% change every day between now and 12 months from now, it'll look very different. If you try to do it all overnight, it's especially in the state Mm. we're kind of all in, it's going to be too much. And then you're going to feel like you failed. And why am I doing this? And maybe sales isn't for me. And Mm. and that's not, that that would be unfortunate, right? That would be unfortunate. So I'd say those would be two sides to the same coin managers, make sure you're taking care of your people. They're experiencing high levels of burnout and anxiety and stress on an individual level. Do not, you know, do not feel you have to do everything you're learning and hearing day one, that these small little efforts, but if you have a beginner's mind, if you're open to trying new things each day, even if they don't work, you will be better off for it 12 months from now. You know, this content is amazing content because I, I often talk about Dr. Carol Dweck's book, you know, Mindset, The Fixed and Growth Mindset. And I yep. think everything that you've spoken about is about saying, hey, there's a lot that we can't control, but there's a whole lot I can control. I can control that commitment just to do that one thing. And that one thing will help me improve every single day, regardless of whether I achieve the outcome I want or not it's allowing me to achieve that growth. And I think that kind of completely for me, you know, the things that were in your book, there was so many aha moments that I had thinking to myself, you know what, I've got to do more of that. And I'm going to add that to my list and I'm going to add something new. So I just want to say, Tiffany, thank you very much for coming on the Sales IQ podcast. I really appreciate the, the impact that you've had you have on thousands of sales professionals and businesses. Your book's amazing. And we're going to put where people can grab your book in the show notes. And just for anyone that does want to reach out and connect with you, where's the best place for them to find you? So I'm really active on social. So follow me on LinkedIn, follow me on Twitter. You know, I, I tend to balance my content uh, while yeah. I'm really known in the sales world, which I'm grateful for. And, and, and I love being a part of, trust me, oh. I, I miss selling every single day, but I get to vicariously sell through all of you. So, you know, if you're successful, I feel like I'm successful. So when you hit quota, I hit quota. It's a win-win for everybody. But I also talk about these kinds of conversations, right? Growth, personal disruption, innovation, thinking differently about how you approach problems, you know, how to become uh, that sort of better storyteller. What are the ways in which Mm -hmm. you can separate yourself? Like the conversation is much broader because sales is, is an art as much as it is a science. And so, you know, you have to really approach it from both ways, but that's why I wrote growth IQ and I didn't make it sales IQ. You know, I did because it's, it's not just about sales growth is Mm. like the backbone of corporate growth is personal growth. Personal growth is an individual thing. How do you inspire tens, hundreds, thousands, Mm. tens of thousands of people to change yeah. Like it's really hard. And so you just have to find a tight network of people, even if it's customers and clients that you can test things with, that'll give you real-time feedback. That's where to go to try things out. Don't try it, you know, across everybody, you know, try little things and see what works and doesn't work and make sure it always stays true to you and who you are. And you'll be successful if you just keep, you know, trying yeah. and feeling, you know, psychologically safe around having a team that will tell you the truth when they need to. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, look, Again, thanks for coming on the Sales IQ podcast. And this has been insightful for myself. And I know our listeners globally will get a lot out of this. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me.